Hey you rascals, Walrus here. Today a neighborhood story, a very special one. You see, I live in Kreuzberg, a kick-ass district in Berlin. To be precise, I live at... That's right, Gurlitzer Bahnhof. Gurli. I live at Gurli. Now, if you're not familiar with this particular Keats, if I say Gurlitzer Station, Berliners will say... You're asking about drug dealing, is that what you're trying to get at? Yeah. The thing, however, is that this particular neighborhood is actually the bomb. We have the Vietnamese Valhalla Miss Saigon right below my apartment. There's the mosque on the corner, which sells sandwiches so cheap, I practically get breakfast there every morning. Around the corner on Wienerstrasse you have Merkon, the authentic Turkish homestyle kitchen. And then, across the street, there's these guys. Kreuzberg is a multi-culti gegend and so viel los here. Ooh, that sounds German. What did the man say, Walrus? What did he say? Well, let's not get entangled in linguistic trivialities. Let's properly introduce this charming man first. Yeah, I Karim. Adam Muhammad Sheikh. Say what? This, my friends, is Abdel Karim, and he owns the wonderful Sudanese eating place Khartoum on Wienerstrasse. It's nothing fancy, as Abdel says himself. For a few bucks, you can get a decent and satisfying meal. And that's why you can find me here once, all right, twice a week. We have falafel and uh, halloumi and uh, aubergine and pasta and uh, you know, the Sudanese gidois. <laughs> that actually cracked me up. Germanified Sudanese food is what he calls it. Personally, I come here to be comforted, to be taken care of. It is my tiny Sudanese home, where pictures of pyramids and Arabic scripture decorate the walls. But to be honest, I never really speak to the man himself. I shake his hand, ask him how business is. Could be better, but it's alright, he tells me. I take my seat at the window, put a podcast on and zone out. Not today, Walrus. Talk to this man. In, uh, Abdel Karim left Sudan in 1996 to come and study in Leipzig. Later he moved to Berlin where he met his wife. He married a German of Turkish descent with whom he has five children, three of which are currently going to the gymnasium. He likes Kreuzberg and the neighborhood we live in, which he calls a multicultural place where there's always something going on. He tells me about the hardships of living in Sudan, a land that has been ruptured by conflicts, how he still visits his family, his father every two years, and that he wants to go back. Du, du sagst, das Leben in Sudan ist schwer, aber trotzdem wolltest du eigentlich zurück. Ja, ich will, das ist mein Land. Ja. Das meine Familie, sie lebt dort und uh, ich bin dort geboren. Und he wants to go back, but he feels he cannot. What kind of a future will my children have, he tells me. I have lived my life. Ich habe mein Leben gelebt. Und uh, jetzt will ich für meine Kinder was machen. Now I want to do something for my children. It's the topic of today's show. Home. It's about Kreuzberg and feeling welcome. Walrus is exploring his neighborhood and stumbles on some amazing stories. Um, and this story, when I tell people, they don't believe me. That and more coming up.
But before we commence with today's podcastio activities, first a short message. Other than creating Savvy Radio, the people at the 4000 Hertz podcasting label also like to point your attention to interesting social projects that are worth checking out. I, Walrus, like to address the Solidarity Tours by Refugee Voices, an initiative started last autumn. These tours tell the story of the refugee rights movement from the perspective of the participants themselves. This summer, they'll be back with two tours, which will give you a unique insight into the immigrant struggle that took place in Berlin over the last couple of years. I did one of them last year and it's very, very intriguing. Check out their Facebook page at Refugee Voices Tours to find out more. So, what else can I tell you about my hood? Well, known for its left-wing alternative scene, there is a lot of demonstrations going down on Skaletzerstrasse, something I wasn't quite familiar with coming from the orderly Amsterdam. Also, Kreuzberg is known to have a vibrant Turkish community. It housed the thriving force of Berlin's squatting movement in the 70s, and every year on the 1st of May, there are the infamous Labor Day celebrations happening right underneath my window. So you could say things are pretty damn dynamic here at Görlitz Bahnhof. Walking over the always lively Oranienstrasse, you'll find no shortage of bars, restaurants and music venues. But these are all not part of today's episode. I have to walk a little bit further down the Oranienstrasse until I get to Oranienplatz. Oranienplatz literally means orange square and was designed in the middle of the 19th century by one of Berlin's most well-known landscape architects, Peter Josef Lenné. But let's not get carried away too much by historic details. Today's story zooms in on events that happened much more recent and are actually still developing today. Back in 2012, the um, the square Oranienplatz was occupied um, by uh, refugees. This is Lorna Cannon, an active member of the refugee rights movement here in Berlin. Uh, they march from their camps all around Germany and they march to Berlin. They occupied a square and the idea was to fight for their rights. From October 2012 till April 2014, this occupied square would become the focal point for refugee protest in Germany. That is 19 months of living in tents in one of the densest areas in Berlin. Through two harsh winters and several eviction attempts, this movement here on O-Square stood on the forefront fighting for the rights of refugees. That is well before the media hype last year covering the forced Syrian migration. Today, standing on Oranienplatz, there's nothing that reminds us of the ongoing struggle for people in exile. On this episode, more on the significant events on Orange Square, 2012-2014. My name is uh, Anur and uh, I come from Sudan. I'm incredibly grateful that Anur wanted to meet up on Oranienplatz with me. Uh, I've been come from Sudan in Germany um, since 2012, March 2012. He's one of the people who made the risky decision to leave his assigned refugee lager, his camp, in September 2012 and March to Berlin. I left Sudan because I have a war in my country since 2003 in Darfur, because I live in Darfur. 
Anur's voyage from Sudan to Germany would take nearly two years and is actually kind of a coincidence. And actually, I could say like I came by just by the wrong truck or the, my mistake because I was actually, I want to go to England, I don't want to come here. After departing in 2010, Anur traveled through Chad, Libya, spent seven days on a boat at sea, arrived in Italy, then France, where he thought he boarded a truck going to England. Just they put you in any car, they don't care which car this is going or not going because you don't know anything and you cannot go and it's very hard to try with yourself. So we tried with that and there was in the truck, wrong truck and uh, myself in Germany. Yeah. And that's how he ended up in a refugee camp in Braunschweig, a city 200 kilometers west of Berlin. Here he had to ask for asylum and according to German law had to abide by the so-called Residenzpflicht, the compulsory residence, technically a restriction in movement. That means that when Anur arrived in Braunschweig, he was stuck in the camp. It's, it just it gets crazy because watching TV or eating or sleeping. And so this is like trying to kill him, the killing is slowly or to damage you slowly, slowly. So it's It was this restriction in movement along with two other demands, no deportation and no lagers no camps, that led refugees from all over Germany to organize themselves and in September 2012, march to Berlin. So that is what our two demand, that's why we came here. So we said we have to come here in the capital and we have to go to the fight really there for our rights because we need to live to feel like a human being. We just need to feel like to live a normal life like everybody else. You have to understand, coming to Berlin was a very risky step. For every day that Anur wasn't abiding by his compulsory residence, he could be fined, imprisoned and eventually deported. Deciding to march to Berlin was an act of desperation in and by itself. So my first thing was to get a beer and go and sit on the square, um, on my bench on Iranian Platz. So I went there and then I was like, what on earth is going on? Because it was just full of tents. And I just really didn't get what was going on. I was really confused. So I just went and um, started looking at the information point that they had and started realizing that these people were refugees. Lorna originally came to Berlin to study and decided to come back after finishing her degree in England. She had already volunteered helping asylum seekers back at home and soon became involved in the Occupy movement as Oranienplatz. Weirdly enough, because of my involvement and because it was so early on in my time, um, I just, yeah, I just kind of had friends, most of my friends were refugees, so it became very personal to me as well. Um, and we just started a cooking group on Iranian Platz, that's how everything developed. The idea was to create a sense of togetherness through food, cooking with people from inside but also outside of the tented community, sharing meals, sharing stories. As time progressed, the occupation itself became quite well organized. Yeah, the calm, it was uh, really, really a very good calm. So we have like there, we have the info, like the info tent there, and we have the circle tent. We have all our meetings there, and we have all kind of meeting, our meeting there, and we have our public kitchen group, and we have our media group, and, and we have about the illegal group, and we have about mobilization group, and all, everything, it was really working well. Um, and we were really lucky because people who had occupied Iranian Platz were really welcoming to us um, and they were very happy that we had this, this cooking group. And that kind of evolved and, and Iranian Platz was uh, sadly evicted 
The occupation on Oranienplatz ended in April 2014 with the forced eviction of the asylum seekers. Worn down by the harsh living conditions and due to an internal struggle within the camp itself, the occupants left Oplatz after 19 months of protests. The fight for their rights, however, would continue from an abandoned school in Olauerstrasse, a 10-minute walk from the square. And then uh, later on in the summer, they they uh, attempted to evict the school, which um, which cost five million euros. The police operation. Um, it lasted nine days. A lot of people were on the roof of the school, um, and they refused to come down. And they fought even harder for their rights. And as a result, um, the state actually gave up, and they said, "Well, we're not going to evict the school." So the school on Olauerstrasse kept being occupied, but it wouldn't be long before something dramatic would rapidly change our attitude towards asylum seekers coming to Europe. The story continues after this short break. Audio junkies, I can't tell you how happy I was getting so many positive reactions on the last episode. And it was great to see that the show has gained a lot of new listeners from basically all over the place. Just wanted to let you know I thoroughly appreciate your well-curved ears and would even be more thrilled if you'd let me know what you think of the show. Hit me up at hello at walrusandabear.com, follow on Instagram or Twitter, or even better, rate the show in iTunes. It's really a click of the button and would boost the show a whole lot. I thank you from the bottom of Walrus's chubby heart. Onwards we go. Who is Walrus? So, here's the deal. There are people from all over the world fleeing from war and conflict, looking for refuge in countries that seem safe and secure. Anur made it all the way from Sudan to Germany, and he marched on Berlin to ask attention for the migrant situation in Germany. Oranienplatz eventually was evicted, and the struggle for better living conditions continued from the school in Olauerstrasse. And then, this happened. The body of a little Syrian boy found on a beach in Turkey, will forever be linked to this crisis, a crisis that is clearly going to be Europe's most important challenge for years to come. That was Hugh Edwards of the BBC talking, of course, about the Syrian refugee crisis that got massive attention in 2015. It would change the attitude of the German government and other governments throughout Europe towards migrants fleeing from conflict. But it wouldn't particularly improve the situation for Anur and his companions. The problem is here, you can see like really the differences between black migrants or and the Syrian. The Syrian, yes, this is Anur describes a different stance towards black immigrants and Syrians. I ask him why he thinks that happened. But 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 why is that? I yeah, I, I think so. Why the difference is the people, this is, I think, the position really. For the Syrians, I think so, like, okay, if they have this, or, but I don't know the answer to, to exactly you. This is very difficult, but we just seen this is the differences, but how? That is always to ask them because we are not like a lot to the politician, but why they make a differences? I think so, maybe of the color. I think so, maybe because of the color. Um, I think the, the division between uh, refugees has uh, has happened because um first of all the the Syrian crisis has been in the media the Syrian war the revolution the arab spring this is something that people saw happen so they understand it much more um and so if you say there's a Syrian refugee well people know instantly why that person is here 
And to add to that, the coverage on the war in Syria, but also Iraq and Afghanistan, is very recent. It's still represented in our daily news stories. Um, and, you know, take Sudan, for example. I mean, if you, if you ask people, well, what's going on in Sudan? Nobody's going to be able to tell you, you know, nobody's going to be able to say, well, it's a very brutal regime. There's been a war there since the 1950s. You know, same with Somalia. There's no there's no government in Somalia. Well, there's no wonder that people are fleeing, but it's not in the media. So people are less um, sympathetic or empathetic because they have absolutely no idea what's going on. The, the German government, they think, OK, Syrian people are more... Um, are likely to be more well-educated and have skills. So if we accept the Syrians, then, you know, they can they can solve our population crisis because we need workers, you know. But um, unfortunately, there's a stigma attached to people coming from, um, from African countries that they're not going to be as well-educated or they're not going to be as capable. These people, both fleeing from extremely difficult circumstances, are treated very differently. And in this particular story, that has a very real outcome for Anur and the original occupants. Yeah. Because also in your school, right? Yeah. I mean, your school making now also divides yeah. Yeah? Yeah. between refugees that were there before and new refugees. Uh, you can see that. That is definitely. And they will come, the new people, actually very soon. I think maybe in one week or two weeks they will come. That is, new refugees coming into the school where the majority of the original activists were kicked out from. And them themselves, they make a wall. So why? Because they don't want us to, because this is what they bring them, they're Syrian. And we are a black, it's refugee is still there. The problem is you, the politician, make bullshit to divide the people, and this is this people is better than this, and this people is better than this, and this is the clear everything is there. Everybody's seen it. Which is still a big question mark. Um, what's going to happen to it? You know, they're, they're planning on bringing Syrian refugees into the school now, um, and that's a that's a big talking point because actually one half of the school is still occupied by some of the original activists, some of the uh, the refugees who were living there before. And the other half of the school has been made nice and kind of luxury. And they have two separate entrances. Um, and the nice side is for the Syrian refugees and the other side is for the other refugees. And um, on the tour, this raises the question, you know, why are some people who are refugees given preferential treatment to others? Now, you heard Lorna speak about a tour. I said something about it, too, in the beginning of this story. And that's actually the reason why I wanted to make this episode in the first place. So this tour, it, it I mean, it just lends it, the story lends itself so well to the tour because it's it's within walking distance. The places are still there. We also go to Gerlitzer Park, which um, has a reputation for being a dangerous place because there are people selling drugs. The tour is about, well, why are there refugees selling drugs in Gerlitzer Park? Why are there people from different African countries selling drugs in Gerlitzer Park? This is this is something that we need to discuss and, and who better to explain it than people who really understand it. The Refugee Voices Solidarity Tours were an idea of Lorna, trying to make something positive out of the hardships of these people. Since its origins last summer, the tours have gotten attention of The New Yorker, The Guardian and the BBC. The idea was not just to give them a, a way of making money. Um, I will just say that the tours are, are donation-based for legal reasons. We can't charge for the tours, but we do ask for donations. Um, but it's also about them having a job. You know, for some of these people, they've been sitting around for years with no job and no routine in their lives and no purpose. And all of a sudden, you know, they can say, well, I'm a tour guide. And maybe one of the most important things why the tours are there, it's to remember. 
Um, and so people, I think, come away with this story. And I think it's a very important story because what happened, those people who fought um, for the rights, uh, for their own rights, for the rights of refugees in Germany, they did change the law. Residenzplik no longer exists. But they did something much bigger than that. They changed people's attitudes. And it's not a coincidence that last year you saw these refugees welcome committees in the train stations. You know, that's because these people, they changed people's minds and they were more present than any any other place in Europe. Um, and what's really sad and what people kind of realize at the end of the tour is, okay, wow, so these people fought for their rights except that the people who got their rights were other refugees. The tours will start shortly and will be taking place every Saturday, starting from where it all began, Oranienplatz. Uh, specifically, for me, specifically in Berlin, I feel really, really in Koisberg, they're really, really, like, like you feel like really, really, yes, a little bit safe and you feel like here you are welcome because you see the people, because how is the people talking to the people and coming together and when you think it's going for the refugees or the asking, specifically about the refugees for if it's supporting or with everything and this and they did a lot and for us it was not easy two years without electricity and the things we don't get any things even not one cent from the German government just from the people and most of people here from the coast back to the really sand with us and they come in sleeping here with us and they come in to make the info tent and they they're really really there friendly so you feel here like you're welcome like in your home especially in Koisberg but other places you don't see even the the people how in a lot of immigrant people or the people people moving or just the face of the people when you stay there even you could talk and they will help and you could do things if you just ask for things you will find and just it's welcome. Kreuzberg is special. After hearing Lorna and Anur speak about the events that are still developing to this day, I have tremendous respect for this neighborhood and the people that support the refugee movement. And um, we just built up our community and it's, um, for me, it's just the most beautiful thing because when you live, especially in a big city in Europe, community is not something that you find. You know, we've we've lost that sense of going to church or having that you know knowing your neighbors or especially in berlin you just you just don't have it but i feel very lucky that i've been given this chance to have a community in berlin so it's, it's a really positive thing if you're not already on their facebook page go check it out right now i can only highly recommend the tours they are doing given that the story that unfolds right here in this keats is extraordinary also still going strong the cooking group in Gerlitzer Park, every Saturday. Bring some beer, grab a bite and join a relaxed day in the park. I cannot thank Anur and Lorna enough for sharing their story with me. They have been incredibly helpful and disarmingly honest in our conversations. Also thanks to Abdel Karim for feeding me and patching me up after a hard day. Eat food at Khartoum. Also a shout out to Izan Choksi who helped me set up this episode. Music is by Denis Wouters and Mark Schilders. Walrus and the Bear is a production of Via 1000 Hertz and produced from Moritzplatz, named after Moritz of Orange, in beautiful downtown Kreuzberg, Germany. I thank you for listening to episode 2 and wanted to let you know that I like that intelligent and gorgeously round head of yours. Walrus, out! A 4000 Hertz Production 2016.